Good morning. So glad to be here again. It's been a few months. Thank you to Joey to, uh, and the leadership for inviting me again here. After every sermon, I ask my family if they've learned anything new, uh, whether it's information or, you know, maybe a moral lesson or spiritual lesson that they learned. But two weeks ago, I spoke at a church, and after that sermon, I asked my usual question, have you learned anything new? They were brutally honest and said, mm, nothing. <laughs> it's possible that you may not learn anything new today, because this is a very, very basic sermon. And you may walk away thinking, man, I didn't learn anything, no new information, and no moral or spiritual lesson, because it's a very, very basic sermon today. We are in a series in the book of Deuteronomy, and the text that was given to me is Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 to 20. And that is the back end of a larger section. So turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 30. I won't go verse by verse in that passage like I usually do, but I will look at the broader context of that story. The context of the story is, as we know, is that the people of Israel are knocking on the doors of the promised land. They've been wandering for 40 years in the desert, and now they are knocking on the doors and and Moses has this extensive diatribe where he talks about the blessing of God if you obey. And he goes through all those verses. And then he talks about what happens if you disobey God. And he goes through all those things. And he pleads with the people of Israel as you enter the promised land, because he himself would not. He pleads with the people of Israel saying, please choose to obey. This morning in a sermon entitled, The Risk of Obedience, I want to look at the concept of love and obedience. Like I said, very, very basic topics. I've divided the sermon into four parts. In the first part, we will look at what is love. Second, we will look at the bridge from love. And third, we will look at our utter inability. Fourth, we will look at a supreme example. First, let's ask the question, what is love? If somebody were to ask you to give a definition of love, how would that go? What would you say? While you think about that definition of love, let's see what culture says about love. In the 2020s, culture may say that love numbed all the pain till the day bleeds into nightfall. The 2010s may say that love is an ache we still remember with somebody that we used to know. The 2000s, in love we make our way downtown and walk a thousand miles tonight. In the 1990s, love is when the baby won't hurt me, won't hurt me no more. In the 1980s, love is not a river, it's not a razor, it's not a hunger. Instead, love is a flower specifically a rose. In the 1970s, since we are living in a world of fools breaking us down, we need to know how deep is your love? What is love? You probably come in your mind with a definition for love. And it's very risky to give a definition for love because everybody has experienced it and everybody has love. So here, I'm going to take a risk and give a definition for love. I used a couple Bible dictionaries as my base, but here's my definition for love. It is an inner feeling of intense affection that defines relationships. 
It is an inner feeling of intense affection that defines relationship. The words for love in the Bible have a noun and a verb to it. There is an action component to love, but it is essentially a feeling. If love is a feeling, how can I show it? And that brings us to the second part of the sermon, the bridge from love. Is there a bridge from love being a feeling to an action? I asked this question last Saturday to myself, and I spent most of last Saturday trying to come up with an answer to, is there a bridge between love and action? If love is a feeling, what is a bridge between a feeling and an action? I suggest that the factor that connects love, the feeling, to an action is a promise. In biblical language, it's called a covenant. It is a promise that connects a love. Love goes through a promise and becomes an action. Love by its nature is covenantal. So when you say he or she is my BFF, what is the purpose of the second F in the BFF, right? Why is there a best friend forever? Why can't you say best friend today? She is my best friend this year, or he is my best friend for the next two years. But love by itself is covenantal. It just makes promises. And that's why you say he's going to be my best friend Forever, You know, when we were in 10th grade, we wrote on each other's or in the 12th grade, when you wrote on each other's uh, notebook those days, oh, you're gonna, I'm gonna remember you forever. And you know, <laughs> forget about it. <laughs> love is covenantal. When there is love, there ends up being a covenant. And that is the connecting point from love to action. God's love is covenantal. And when you study about the covenants of God, all the covenants of God have love as the basis. So his Abrahamic covenant, his Mosaic covenant, his Davidic covenant is all based on the love of God. Love goes through a covenant and results in an action. I use the word action intentionally because it can mean two things. If the action is from an inferior being to a superior being, it is obedience. If it is from a superior being to an inferior being, that action is faithfulness or covenantal faithfulness. That is what we see in the book of Deuteronomy. There is love, there is a covenant, and God has exhibited his covenant of grace and love to his people already. When you read the book of Deuteronomy, there are numerous times where God says, you were slaves in Egypt, and I have taken you out of slavery and out of Egypt by my outstretched hand, and I have brought you through the desert. He says, in the desert, your shoes did not wear out, and you were not hungry. God is showing that he was love. He was exhibiting his love even though the people didn't know it. And now he asks from the inferior being to the superior being, he asks for obedience. Love is expressed through obedience. God wants us to obey him. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to John chapter 14 and verse 23. John 14, 23. Jesus replied, 
If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. So then the question is, what is obedience? We know what love is. We know there's a promise, a covenant, and we have to obey. What is obedience? I refer to J.I. Packer's writing, and he says, Obedience is listening under authority and compliance with requests. Listening under authority and compliance with requests. So there's listening and compliance. Most of the words in the Bible that is used for obedience have a component of hearing or listening. So when your child does not obey you, the first question you have to ask is, is he even listening to me? Because if he's not listening to you, then he's not going to obey you. Because listening is the first component of obedience. You got to listen and then comply. The bigger the authority is, the less the questions we ask when we are asked to obey. Okay? If the authority is infinite like God is, then we don't get to question in our obedience. We get to just obey. No questioning whatsoever. But we have an utter inability to love and to obey. The people of Israel were warned, don't disobey God, don't disobey God, please obey God and you will have all these blessings. And from Joshua to 2 Chronicles is a story of how they continuously disobeyed God. They disobeyed God, warned them, they disobeyed God, warned them, and that was a continuous cycle until in 2 Chronicles they are exiled. What God had told them through Moses would happen, happened to them. They were exiled from their land. They were taken from their land, first by Assyria, and then 125 years later by the empire at that time, the Babylonian empire. They were taken from their land and exiled to another land. We are so wicked that we cannot bring ourselves to love or to obey God. And so in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, it reads, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure, who can understand it? John Phillips in his book, Exploring Romans, writes these words about the human condition. He says, man's power to think lifts him above the beasts of this field. In this age of scientific enlightenment and advanced technology, we have every evidence that man has a brilliant intellect, yet at the same time it is strangely clouded to spiritual realities. For despite his genius in so many realms, man betrays a most remarkable denseness when it comes to the things of God. He has no natural understanding in this realm at all. His mind, incisive in so many ways, is warped and twisted when it comes to eternal and spiritual issues. The damage wrought by sin runs deep into the very roots of the thinking processes of man. His imaginations are often filthy, his memories often betray him, his deductions are often false, and his conclusions are often wrong. And so God has to change us 
from the inside out. And that is what we see in this passage that is in front of us. In Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 6 it reads, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. About 20 chapters before in chapter 6 verse 5, it said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And then 20 chapters later, he says that God will circumcise your heart so that you can love God. Because if God doesn't change us from the inside out of our own ability, we cannot. And because God has changed us from the inside out, obedience is now a gift from God. That was such a profound statement. I thought somebody would get up and dance. <laughs> Let me say it again. I mean, you don't need to dance, but <laughs> obedience is a gift from God. And to show you the difference in obedience now versus obedience in the past, when obedience is a gift and before it was a gift. Let me go back to the quintessential commands of the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, which is in Exodus chapter 20. Let me read some of those Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not covet. Now that was a command. But when obedience is a gift, the command becomes a promise. Now I'm going to read the same thing again and look at it as a promise and not a command. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not covet. You see how the command now, because our hearts have been changed, has become a promise. This is what we would do because our hearts have been changed. And fourthly, we come to a supreme example. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Luke chapter 2, verse 51. It's one of the most fascinating verses. Luke chapter 2, verse 51. The context is that Jesus is 12 years old, and he has just had this huge discussion with the teachers of the law and the scribes in Jerusalem, and that chapter ends with this verse. When it says in verse 51, Then he went down to Nazareth with them, and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. He went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them and his mother treasured all these things in her heart. In his book, God Came Near, Max Lucado asks 25 questions to Mary. Let me read some of these questions that Max Lucado asks Mary, the mother of Jesus. What was it like watching him pray? When he saw a rainbow, did he ever mention a flood? Did you ever feel awkward teaching him how he created the world? How did he act at funerals? Did the thought ever occur to you that the God to whom you were praying was asleep under your own roof? Did he ever ask a question about scripture? Did you ever think, that's God eating my soup? 
You see, ladies and gentlemen, in spite of the omniscient, omnipotent creator God living in the house of Mary and Joseph, he was obedient to them. He submitted to their authority. His love for his parents went through a promise and became obedience because he considered them authority. He listened and complied with their requests. But obedience comes with risks, doesn't it? At what risk do you obey God? What risk would you have if you fully obeyed God? Let me point out some risks. Maybe if you fully obeyed God, you would have loss of some relationships and loss of some friendships. That's okay. If you have loss of friendships because you have a weird temperament and people don't want to hang out with you, that's on you. Let's not blame the Christian faith for that. But if your temperament is kind of okay to get along with people and you lose friendships or relationships because of your Christian faith, that's okay. That's a risk. It's worth the risk. Maybe if you obeyed God fully, you would have loss of job opportunities. Maybe you will never get a promotion because of your Christian faith. Maybe you won't get a status because of your Christian faith. That's okay. In fact, we think that, you know, if God is with us, then I'm going to rise to the top of everything. I'm not sure that's true. Because if that's true, every world leader and every richest person and every CEO should be a born-again believer. That's not true. It's not like God is saying, well, here are the standards of the world. If you obey me, you will come up in the standards of the world. No. Now, the standards of the world are opposite to the standard of God. So many times you may lose out on a promotion or a raise or anything because of your Christian faith. Because you're choosing to obey God. And that is a risk. That is a risk that we are all called to take because we are choosing to obey God. Maybe if you obey God, you will have a loss of some of your desires. The things that you want to do, you cannot do because you are obeying God. Let me present a first world problem. Maybe you cannot go on every vacation you want, just like Miss Smith and Mr. Jones go on vacation every year. You can't go. Maybe you can't get a new house. You can't get a new car. You can't get a renovation done because you are obeying God and using money that you have to give to the ministry. And as you do that, well, that's the risk. That's the risk we take. Or maybe it's loss of comfort. God has never promised us total comfort on earth, apart from him. I've got friends who are missionaries in hostile countries. And 
They left the comfort of their home and the security of their job and are now missionaries living in a foreign land in a hostile country. In many Eastern countries, you become a believer and obey God, you're expelled from your family. It's not a big deal here if you're expelled, oh, it's what it is. But back in the East, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. There are many Middle Eastern countries where you become a believer and you obey God. You are expelled from your family and worse, tortured or killed. Last year, I spoke for a week in a country that I won't name. And there were a group of people there I spoke to, I came back and about six months later, I found out that one of the brothers that was in that group was arrested in his home country. I think he's still in jail. There is a risk in loving God and there is a risk in obeying God. And that risk is not downplayed. I'm not downplaying that, that risk. Because God doesn't downplay that risk. In fact, God does not ask us to do anything that he hasn't done himself. How far would the obedience of Jesus go? Philippians chapter 2 verse 7 and 8 reads, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. For God to die itself is humiliating, but it would have been one thing if he died of old age. But to die in the worst way possible. His love for us is expressed through his covenant and his faithfulness to his covenant. And the cross perfectly unites the covenantal faithfulness that Jesus had toward us and the obedience that Jesus had toward his father. And let me end with this story. There's a chance we haven't heard the name of Heather Penny. She was a 26-year-old rookie pilot who was at the Andrews Air Force Base. And she came from a family of pilots. And she was one of the very first American combat pilots and she flew an F-16. But this time she was called for a very special assignment. It was September 11, 2001. When American Airlines Flight 11 hit World Trade Center Tower 1 at 8.46 a.m., everybody thought it was a mistake. But 17 minutes later, when United Airlines Flight 175 hit World Trade Center Tower 2, America realized it was under attack. And so what it did was to see how many other planes are flying in the air right now that could be used as missiles, like the first two were used. And so they tracked every other plane that was flying. All the flights were accounted for except one. There was one plane, United Airlines Flight 93, that had taken off from Newark, New Jersey, and was flying towards San Francisco, California. And they could not get a response from it. You know why? Because that plane was hijacked. 
And so Heather Penny was called for her assignment. She came with Colonel Mark Sasseville and both of them got into their own jets. The task at hand was to bring down this passenger plane, United Airlines Flight 93, before it became a missile. And as they planned to take off, on their planes, they didn't have the time to arm themselves, and so they could not shoot down the other plane. And so the plan was for Mark Sasville to hit the cockpit region of the passenger plane, and she would hit the back end of the passenger plane and bring the whole thing crashing down. Mark Sasville's plan was to eject from his jet just before it hit the cockpit of the other passenger plane. But Heather Penny said that she would not eject. She said that she would stay till the end because she didn't know if she ejected from that plane, if she would miss the target and she would fail in her mission. And so when she got onto that plane, onto her jet, she knew that it could have been for the very last time. And as it turned out, the Passengers on that plane stormed the cockpit and brought down the plane in a crash in Pennsylvania where everybody died. And so the mission of Heather Penny did not need to be completed. About 2000 years ago, there was a similar mission. The world was hurtling toward disaster and a certain death. And there was one person who could intervene. Unfortunately, he could not escape from that mission. And that mission had to be completed. So on a Roman cross, just outside the city of Jerusalem, Jesus died to save the world. I'm going to give the opportunity for two groups of people to respond to this sermon. Maybe there's somebody here who's never invited Jesus into your life or somebody listening, whether now or later, who's never invited Jesus into your life. You've never had your heart changed to obey God. I'm going to invite you to make a commitment to follow Jesus. Or maybe there is somebody else here who has proclaimed love for God. But that love has not translated into obedience. It is still a feeling and it is just a proclamation. Maybe there's somebody here who does not want to obey God because of the risks. There is a risk in obedience. Jesus took that risk in obedience. We can close our eyes and let's pray. If there's anybody here who's never invited Jesus into your life. Jesus lived a perfect life. He died a sacrificial death on our behalf. And he rose up again on the third day. You can pray something like this. The prayer itself is not a magical formula. But if it's a prayer that you mean. And it comes from the bottom of your heart. God will fulfill his promise. You can pray something like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. And my heart is deceitful above all things. I ask you to come into my life and change me and make me complete. Thank you for your life. Thank you for your sacrificial death. 
and thank you for your powerful resurrection. Thank you for changing my heart so that I can love you and so that I can obey you. Heavenly Father, I pray for the rest of us that have had our hearts changed already and yet we don't love you to the fullest extent. We have let other things distract our love for you. You have changed the command to a promise so that we can obey you, and yet we don't. I pray that you would help us to be focused on converting the proclamation of our love into the action of obedience. We know it is risky, but you took a risk, Lord God. Give us the strength to obey you no matter the cost. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.